Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. Today on our second last program of the current series, The Heart of the Gospel, Dr. John Newfeld takes us through some of the most important lessons about what constitutes true faith. So listen in as we turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25 for this message on faith that inherits the world. Recently, I saw an advertisement on television which depicts a man with a long beard and tattered clothing standing on a beautiful beach. He says that he spent a lifetime of travel and energy, but finally, after a lifelong quest, he has found paradise. There's a woman next to him, and he asks her how long it took her to get there. She tells him it was a matter of seconds. She simply went to a travel website, and they did all the booking for her. I thought that was pretty funny. A lifetime of effort trying to accomplish that which should take no effort at all. I want you to imagine an individual spending his lifetime working for something valuable like a house or financial freedom. Maybe it's something that's not monetary, like a good reputation or power, the power to make a difference in the world. Now imagine that after a lifetime of work and sacrifice, this man or woman discover the person next door had a wealthy or influential father who simply gifted them with everything they had. And what the neighbor had was more than what they had tirelessly worked for. And how do you think that you would react if you were the person who worked while the other got it for free? Would you welcome your neighbor having everything handed to him on a silver platter while you worked tirelessly? Would his good fortune seem like good news or would you be angry and envious or even threatened by this? For many Jews in Paul's day, this idea of salvation as a free gift from God felt offensive. They taught that Abraham had obtained the promises of God by carefully keeping the law. But of course, that sounds strange because the law, as presented in the Bible, would not come about for another 400 years. In fact, the suggestion that Abraham had the law is really nonsense because it's logically impossible. Well, then why were the rabbis saying it? The answer is that keeping the law was so important for Israel in Paul's day, and it required so much effort, so much discipline and careful work, and all that effort, they taught, would earn you the promise of God. You worked for God all your life, and then you would get to heaven when you die, and more so, God would bless you with benefits here on earth as well. But what if someone managed to get all this without keeping the law? Well, that was threatening, and so the rabbis had to make up this story about how Abraham had kept the law, lest all their efforts were worthless. You know, the world's religions are full of laws. They're about rules, and they're about human efforts. Islam teaches that after a lifetime of learning the Quran and doing what it teaches, you still can't know for sure whether you're going to heaven when you die, but you better keep working at it because if you don't, you'll never get there for sure. Hinduism and Buddhism teach paths of divine enlightenment, and this includes having a right view, a right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and so forth. Doing these things will help you reach your goal, which is nirvana, which among other things is supreme happiness. In fact, basic Buddhist doctrine teaches that there is no God to save you. It's all up to you. You must save yourself. And for those people who don't have any religion but believe this world is all there is, they also work because in order to achieve the good life, heaven on earth, because that's all there is, you have to work at it. So everyone is working at getting some kind of nirvana. But here in Romans, it's an entirely different idea. Romans 4.13 reads, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
I hope you heard that. 4,000 years ago, a man named Abraham received a promise that he would inherit the world, and this man did absolutely nothing to earn it. And in fact, Jesus speaks the very same way in Matthew 5. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus promised the greatest riches to people who not only had nothing, but had no way of achieving that which he was offering. So just think of what people spend their lifetimes working for. Some want to get rich, but God is offering the riches of his eternal kingdom, far greater than the few shekels you might own here. Some work for fame, but God promises to remember you for eternity. Some expend effort to ensure they will live as long as possible, but God promises eternal life. Some work for happiness, but God promises you eternal joy. Some work for power, but God gives a gift to rule and reign with him forever, all free of charge. I want you to imagine the scenario the Bible describes in Genesis 11. There it says that at one time, not too long after the universal flood, that the whole earth had one language. And there was a memory of the world before the flood and how deeply divided that world was. So they formed a city named Babel. And in that city, they formed a kind of a constitution, which they made a determination. They said, come, let's build a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves that will outlive our times. You know, what's fascinating about this is that none of us remembers the names of any of those people, not one. We don't know what form of government they had. We don't know who their key leaders were, what their major accomplishments were. I mean, outside of the fact that they had to learn to manufacture bitumen. But what books did they write and and what insights did they have? In fact, everything that was once so renowned in their world has now all been forgotten. And in the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 12, we learn of one man, a man named Abraham. And of this one man, God simply makes a declaration. He says, I will make your name great. He did nothing to earn that. And today, about a half of the entire earth's population traces their spiritual heritage back to that one man, one of the greatest names in the history of this planet. And what did Abraham do to earn that name? Well, nothing. Unlike the men of Babel, he did not work for it. Instead, God just came to him and made a declaration. That's what I will do for this man, God says. And that's the point. The greatest treasures come to us by faith. Let's read our text. We're coming to the end of our study of Romans 1 to 4, which is, as you know, the heart of the gospel. So we're reading Romans 4, 13 to 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is a classic text. God's blessings or the promise comes by faith and not by works of the law. Or to put it another way, human effort will not obtain the kind of life that God desires. So it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God does for us. I want you to remember a man named Levi or Matthew. Yes, he's the author of the book of Matthew, and he was also the one that was chosen by Jesus to be one of his 12 apostles. 
He's sitting at his tax collector's booth, not only collecting taxes for an occupying power, but he's overcharging the populace, and he's taking extra taxes for his own lavish lifestyle. A lot of us would feel more comfortable with the story of Levi if Levi had washed his hands of his dirty profession and said he was sorry and then received a call from Jesus. But that's not actually how it happens. Jesus called him where he was. He simply looked at him and said, follow me. And that night, Matthew had a party in his house. And his house was filled with tax collectors and women of ill repute and every known and notorious sinner. And Jesus was the star of the show. And Matthew made sure they all saw from and heard Jesus that night. And all that happened to Matthew is that Jesus called him. Now, true enough, Jesus called him to forsake collecting taxes. Matthew got up from his taxation booth, abandoned his livelihood, and followed Jesus. Listen, no one who hears the call of Jesus can be the same. But did you notice that call came while he was sitting at his tax table during business hours? And that's exactly how it is with everyone. Jesus calls all of us during business hours while we're yet sinners. That's when Christ died for us. We were in the middle of a roaring sin business. When Jesus called, his gift comes to us before we had reformed our ways, not after. Yes, his gift results in reforming our ways, but we're in error if we think reforming our ways gets us anything at all. Grace, and grace alone gets us everything. It's given to anyone who believes no matter what. That's why verse 13 reads, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, righteousness comes as a gift from God, or it will not come at all. That's why, however we examine our lives, we always do so by recognizing that righteousness is always a gift. Whatever I have is received from God. When we come back, we're going to examine that a little bit more deeply. What a powerful statement that Jesus called us during our business hours of doing sin to offer this free gift of immeasurable grace totally apart from anything we could ever do in this lifetime. That fact alone is what makes Christianity so unique apart from all other religions. It's not based on human effort. But there's more to discover about what Paul is saying. So stay tuned after the break where we'll learn more about how Jesus accomplished salvation for us fully and completely, such that we can have total assurance of faith. Thanks so much for listening. You know, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we're grateful for the opportunity to share biblical teaching on a wide variety of mediums every week. Perhaps you're listening in on your local radio right now, but did you know we can deliver these messages to your email inbox every weekday? Our audio mail feature is a great and convenient way to listen on your schedule, while also staying up to date on ministry news and events. As well, if you're on your mobile device, check out our free podcast on iTunes for easy access and MP3 downloads. So visit backtothebible.ca for subscribing to any of these convenient options. For now, let's turn our attention once again to Romans chapter 4 with Dr. John Newfeld. We have noticed that it's not about what we do for God, it's about what God does for us. Let's add another thought. If it's about human effort, then Christ died for nothing. That's such an important point. 
We are sinners and sinners are under condemnation. That's what Romans 1 to 3 taught us. What's more, we can't make ourselves right with God. Now, if law keeping or being faithful to your religion or doing the best you can or anything other than what God did in Christ brought you any of God's blessing, then there was no need for Christ's death. Hear me. Jesus Christ died because God could not have mercy on us in any other way. By the way, that's why we teach that the only way to get right with God is through Jesus. He is the only way. Every other philosophy or religion or worldview holds that we are better than we are and that God's standards are less than they are. But that's wishful thinking. It fails to take note of what genuine righteousness is. So let's look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, this verse does not teach that without the law, there is no sin. We've already established that all are sinners if they are under the law, as the Jews were or not. But the law identifies sin. Before we knew the law, we called it cheating and an error in judgment, but now the law calls it adultery. Before the law, we called it feeling of discontent, but now the law calls it coveting. Before the law, we called it discovering and searching out our spirituality. But the law calls it idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. And so the law highlights our behavior and demonstrates that we are sinners. But it doesn't teach us how to get to God. It rather teaches us how come we aren't getting to God. If it's about human effort, Christ died for nothing. So let's repeat our discoveries so far. First, it's not about what we do. It's about what God does. And second, if it's about human effort, then Christ died for nothing. Now third, if it's about God's effort, then the promise has a guarantee. Are you going to inherit the promises of God? Are you going to heaven when you die? Are you forgiven? Are you sure? Listen to Romans 4.16. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I wonder if you've ever received a cashier's check. I know, I know, I, I'm dating myself when I say that. I know in this day of the internet transactions, cashier's check have become passe. But in the olden days, when I was young, if someone gave you a check, it might bounce. We used to call that an, an NSF check, non-sufficient funds. If you accepted a check like that, you might not ever get paid. But a cashier's check was different because the bank guaranteed it. So that the bank told you that it would put its entire reserves as a guarantee against that check. In the same way, God has placed his reputation against the promises he made to you as an act of his grace. When he says, if you trust in Jesus, I will forgive you. I'll give you life, forgiveness, peace with God, freedom from the bondage of sin, a place in his family, heaven, power, the Holy Spirit, eternal life. Then if that check bounced, then God has stopped being God, which is impossible. So let me put it as personally as I know. If I don't get to heaven, that will reflect badly on God, because this promise that God made to me in the cross never depended upon me or what I do. It depended upon God and what he did through Jesus in the cross. The same is true for you. The same is true for any loved one who puts their hope in Jesus who has already died. If they trusted in the cross of Christ and not in themselves— and if they didn't get to heaven, then God has broken his promises, and that's impossible. 
Now then, just so that we're clear on this, our role in our salvation is not what we do, it's what God does. But that does not mean that we're passive. Yes, we are active. But our activity is not about law-keeping or human effort. Our activity is about faith, which is the opposite of human effort. Let's try to explain that. Like Abraham, the biggest task, the greatest challenge of your life is to believe, to trust God entirely. It is through faith and faith alone that you're saved. Now, I'm going to give you seven characteristics of saving faith. Now, these are seven lessons about faith learned from Abraham. But because we can't cover all of them today, I'm I'm going to just whet your appetite. I'm going to give you one of the characteristics of saving faith and then reserve the next six for tomorrow as we end this series on the book of Romans. So what does saving faith look like? Romans 1.17, speaking of Abraham, says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So what kind of faith did Abraham have? Well, first, notice that his faith is established by being in God's presence. That's what our text says. In the presence of God, he believed. In other words, you don't get faith by working at it. That would make faith simply another human effort. That's the problem with some of us. You know, some of us are so works-oriented, we just can't get away from that. See, what we need is the kind of faith that Abraham had. So how did Abraham gain faith? Well, look again at verse 17. It says, in the presence of God. How did Abraham know that God gives life to the dead? Well, he did know it when he climbed up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. According to Hebrews eleven nineteen, he believed that if God asked him to sacrifice his son, and God promised him at the same time that his son would form the basis of this great nation, then Abraham thought, even if my son dies on that mountain, God will have to raise him from the dead because God doesn't break his promises. Abraham knew that because he had been in the presence of God. See, I have a personal memory that goes all the way back to my childhood. I don't remember how old I was. I think I must have been somewhere between six to eight years of age. My father was building the farmhouse on the farm uh, that would become my home, and I spent most of my growing up years there. The foundation of the basement had been laid. It was a concrete floor with still bits of boards lying on it with open exposed nails. But now dad was laying down the beams to the main floor, open wooden beams upon which he was now nailing the plywood sheets that would form the basis of the main floor. And I was playing beside him and watching my father work. And suddenly I fell backward in between open beams, head first onto the concrete below. And somehow, I don't know how, I did manage to grab one of the beams and I was dangling over a concrete slab below. And I can still remember dad saying, John, listen to me, reach out and grab my hand. But I was terrified. If I reached out with one hand, I had only a brief moment when I would slip and fall below. And everything depended upon whether dad's grasp would hold me. But I can actually remember, even to this day, a thought ran through my head. My brother and I, in the evening, would wrestle with our father, and we'd laugh, and he'd throw us into the air, and he'd catch us, and he'd catch us sometimes at the same time, one in each arm. And Dad was not a tall man, but he was a very powerfully built man. And I remember thinking, as I was dangling over the concrete floor below, Dad's so strong, he'd never drop me. And because I trusted him, I gave him my hand. Hear it again. In the presence of God, Abraham believed. 
He believed in a God who gives life to the dead. He believed in a God who calls things into existence that do not exist. God simply speaks and effortlessly anything he says comes into being. So when the day of his trial came in which he was called to sacrifice his son, he simply believed that God would not fail him. See, when Jesus commands you and I to take up his cross, to throw away our life for the sake of the gospel, when he calls you and I to obey in the most difficult trial that we have ever faced, simply believe, trust him, be in his presence a long time, be there long enough to know that his promises cannot fail. That's why you need to continue to listening to the preaching of God's word. Listen and keep listening until you finally believe in the God who exists, in the God who can be trusted. Listen and believe. Learn to be in God's presence until you believe everything he tells you. And you, like Abraham, will become an heir to the world to come. John, thanks for a great and inspiring message today. One question that comes to mind, though, how do I know that I'm living in the presence of God? How, how do I know that I'm experiencing God's presence? In a very real way, we're all experiencing God's presence. I remember what Paul said to the Athenians, in him we live and we move and we have our being. I mean, sometimes we just don't recognize that God is always speaking. Creation speaks to us. The Word speaks to us. Sometimes God arranges uh, incidents in our lives that are intended to speak to us. I think what we need to say to the Lord is, open my heart so that I might recognize all the things that you're doing in my life. And in that, we begin to kind of flow in God's presence. We we get this sense of, oh, yeah, that was God speaking. And, oh, yeah, when that happened, I mean, God arranged those events. And, and then, of course, my prayer time just becomes alive because in prayer, I'm recognizing that God has always spoken to me all day long. That's fantastic. You know, you mentioned to us you're going to give us seven characteristics of saving faith. Uh, you've given us one today, so I'm looking forward to tomorrow. But give me a little bit of a hint of what we're looking forward to. Yeah, all these characteristics of saving faith are meant to determine or describe what it is uh, that faith genuinely is. We want to get away from the idea that faith is just easy believism and move to this whole area that says faith is actually an, an, an encounter with God in which I trust him fully. And we're going to try to get as specific as we possibly can with that idea. Thanks so much, John. I'm really looking forward to all that you're having to share tomorrow and what you've shared today about being in the presence of God and living by faith. Thanks again, and uh, join us tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada. As we reflected on what it means that God has done it all for us so that we are free from the yoke of earning our salvation, I hope that this is a message that has blessed and inspired you to put your complete trust in Jesus. The gospel is truly meant to be for all of us, whether we've been Christians for years, just started in our walk, and of course, for an unbelieving world. Join us tomorrow as we wrap up this series on Romans with Dr. Neufeld's final lesson. When it comes to seeing the world from a different perspective, there is truly no substitute for experience. That's why Back to the Bible Canada has designed an exclusive vacation experience for you that is like no other, the Israel experience. From October 30th to November 9th, you can join our very own Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests The Weebs, and many other ministry friends for a trip that you won't forget. 
The Bible will come to life for you as you travel in this land that is rich with history, culture, and spiritual significance, not to mention its stunning beauty. So make plans to join us this fall. You'll never be the same. So for more information or to register, go to backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.